Pour yourself a sweet tea, pull up a lawn chair, and turn the page with us. You're listening to Right on Mississippi, a podcast taking you inside the minds of America's most treasured wordsmiths. I'm Ebony Lamumba, and Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's Literary Lawn Party. So I'm Matt Sawyer, live at the Mississippi Book Festival with author James McBride. James, honestly, this is one of the best moments of my life. Is that right? <clears throat> you you are one of the most important authors I've ever read. And uh, I know you have a new book that I devoured as much as I did the other ones. But if I'm not mistaken. Oh, wow. Oh, that is, that is too cool, man. Wow, that's beautiful. When tomorrow is going to be the 10-year anniversary of The Good Lord Bird wow. being published. That's beautiful. And when I got that book as a gift for my 24th birthday in 2015, I didn't read it right away. It took two years, um, and I was at the lowest point of my life, straight up. And when I read that book, it filled me with a kind of hope that I can't quite describe. Well, I mean, uh, well, I mean, uh, <laughs> I mean, this is better than uh, taking a cab when you, you know, waiting for the subway. I mean, it's very nice. Very, very nice of you to say those things. I, I'm, um, uh, you know, uh, well, that's, you know, a book is supposed to give people hope, I suppose, you know? I mean, um, and these people speak to us from the past and they show us that, you know, we're not alone and that, you know, people have gone this way before and they've shown, you know, courage and kindness. And so, uh, well, gee, I'm, I'm glad. I'm, I'm very happy, you know, that, that, uh, the book did that for you. I should have, I, I bought a new car cause of you. Jeez. I mean, <laughs> well, you know, and, and I, I had this when I moved to North Carolina in 2021, I had this painted by a friend of mine in, in Franklin, North Carolina, and I have, I have it hanging in my room. So I wake up every morning as a reminder. Well, of, that's uh, a talented person. And, and maybe one day, one of those, one of those, you know, those wonderful birds will come back. If they're not here, uh, uh, they're here in our hearts and our spirits. Exactly. And, you know. Exactly. I always thought maybe I'd be the one person to find the non-extinct ivory-billed woodpecker. That if I really look close enough, maybe. Uh, <laughs> maybe well, it's out there. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, we have to work with what we have here. Mm -hmm. you know? Well, and, and you know, that book, I think, and it goes the last decade all the way up to to the new book, uh, the Heaven and Earth Grocery Store, is your appreciation of history. And for me, when I first read that book and I learned about your background, I mean, I'm from Ohio. I grew up in Dayton, Ohio. The Oberlin College connection to me was like, oh, wow. Okay. So he went all the way out to Oberlin for college. And, and I, couldn't, I couldn't stop thinking about how those formative years, even all the way through 2013 and now, shaped your love of history. And there was a class you said you took with Jeffrey Jeffrey Blodgett. Right, that's right. Talk about how you learned to love history at Oberlin. And even though it was only one class, it's really informed so many of your stories since. Yeah, well, Jeffrey Blodgett was a, a he was an old-fashioned professor. He had a bow tie, you know, he had a wavy hair, and he was a very enthusiastic guy. And he came into the room one day and said, I'm going to tell you about the greatest wrestler in the history of New Salem, Illinois. He was six feet four. He had the wingspan of a basketball player. 
His name was Abraham Lincoln. And I just, I got hooked on it. I just got hooked on history. I mean, the way he talked about it, it became real and live to me, you know? And um, so at one point I tried to write a book about Abraham Lincoln, but, you know, I ran into Carl Sandburg and that did that. <laughs> he, he covered all of that. But I did, you know, also as a jazz musician, you know, you, you learn about all these men and women who, um, you know, who who suffered so much in the struggle to live as artists and who did so much and whose work went around the world and who nobody knows about. And you realize you're just a small cog. And so I've always loved history. I probably should have majored in history in college, but it all worked out, you know. Music, music, is, music is the history of... Music holds the history of everything in it. That's true. And... Uh... I love that because you, you play the saxophone. Right. Yeah. I used to play the saxophone growing up. Always feel a little bit sad that I didn't keep going. It was it was such a great way to express myself. Well, in, I mean, it ain't way. too late now. I mean, That's saxophone true. is one of those things. I mean, Bill Clinton could play and he couldn't even play. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I mean, it, it is one of those instruments that you can play and you don't have to play it well in order to, you know. Maybe I'll pick it back up. Maybe this will be the inspiration yeah, yeah, to, to you know. think about that. And in music, play, I think with, with the Good Lord Bird, you, you had mentioned that you knew the melody, you know, of the song that, that you were going to write about. And, and then with the Heaven and Earth Grocery Store, music is that central piece that brings people together. Um, talk about how music, you feel like, brings joy, even in the stories that you write. Well, music is, is God's way of speaking to people. You know, it, it's it's... It's the only pure language. And even then, it's been co-opted so much. So, you know, you walk through airports, you're assaulted with this, you know, with music that's supposed to, you know. But good music, real music, you know, means that there's no difference between, you know, Hank Williams and John Coltrane, really. They're both trying to spread some love in the world, you know. And so uh, it's just how they decide to use the language, that language of music. And, and books are the same way. How, how you decide to use... Um, language to tell a story is it doesn't matter so long as the story has the underlying melody has you know love and understanding in it you know and um, you can't have cynicism in music cynicism doesn't exist in music the song that it's played doesn't matter what the song is as soon as the song is you can you can drape it with cynicism Um, but ultimately you know the sugar makes it go and the sugar is is the thing that makes it candy and makes it sweet. I've so. always loved that the way you say, yeah. The sugar makes it go, and yeah. and it it really does. It it brings us close to each other in ways that you know. I, I have friends, and I've built a community around music that weren't a part of my world growing up. And the value of being able to have that shared language of music to to cross boundaries and learn about people and build those relationships. It's it's enduring and it's never ending. And I feel like, yeah, just your background with music, it's so apparent how that love language informs your stories. And, you know, the cynicism thing, I know you've talked about it a lot recently, um, but one of the things that you really helped me do, and I know a lot of other readers, is take stock of, you know, you can know all the things in the world, but if you don't use that for something good, then... Yeah, what's the point? What what better are you? I think you had a line recently. It's like you have to emphasize the positive, or else what's the point of writing stories? Yeah, well, well, I mean, uh, you know, cynicism is like, you know, s- swallowing poison and expecting your enemies to die. 
It just doesn't work out, you know? So why are you going to walk around feeling like that? It ain't going to work. It just doesn't help. So uh, if you're a person who writes books for a living, then, you know, if you want to write good books, you know, you have to infuse them with things that really, listen, people need help. And uh, you want to try to give them whatever help they need to get out of bed in the morning, especially these days. And and I think that's, that's really evident in uh, your stories with, you know, filling people with life. You know, what can I do today to, to help someone's life be easier? Right? Because if you think about people walking around, a lot of people are making each other's lives significantly more miserable. And if you can be that person, uh, you know, in a community, and, and it really reflects how you grew up in, in Red Hook. I know you've talked a lot about the kindness showed toward your mother, and that sort of compassion and empathy and community really continues to carry with you to this day. Well, I mean, in general, you know, I, I grew up in a family that was, well, I guess we considered lower middle class or poor or whatever. Um, but um, th- I always found my community was a place of kindness, you know. I mean, poor people in general are, are pretty kind people. Um, and they're pretty open people. Uh, except when it comes to saying, I got sick. And then nobody wants to ask any questions about that, but which that's just one of those unwritten rules. But in general, um, you know, uh, you, you get what you put out. I mean, I, I don't really have any uh, anger towards, you know, anyone or society for, you know, for the wrongs that have been done. Um, and I don't see the point in talking about them too much. I, I'm only interested in, in solutions. Yeah. Who cares what happened before? I mean, who cares? I, I'm not interested in, you know, how's it hurting me if somebody, you know, decides they'd be a, one of, they're a man, they decide to be a woman? How's it hurt? It ain't hurting me. I don't care. Yeah. So, I mean, not that I'm not trying to make a political statement or anything like that, but I mean, the older I get, the more I realize, you know, the, the more, what counts really in the long run is, you know, just loving somebody. The people who loved me when I was a child and a young man. Uh, you know, did a lot for me. So, um, you know, people who hated me or whatever, or treated me bad, well, I, I can't even remember them. Isn't you know? that interesting? <laughs> I feel the same way. I look back and I'm, people are like, oh, yeah, you know, when people made fun of you as a kid. And it's like, I I don't really remember that as much as the people that loved me. And if you let that carry you, yeah, the stories are going to be more powerful. Your life will be more full. Well, I mean... Um, well, I can't say I forget them all. Like, I was thinking this morning, there was a kid on the bus named Charlie. He used to pull my, my sister's pigtails, and my mother said, you know, if you don't stick up for your sister, I'm going to I'm gonna straighten you. So I said, well, I got on the bus, and I said, well, you know, he really gave it to her one day. I said, all right, I'm going to straighten him out. And I went to the back of the bus, and I said, Charlie, don't you touch my... I didn't even get sister out. My face began to beat his knuckles up very badly, <laughs> you know. And uh, my face tore his knuckles up, <laughs> and uh, and um, and then when I got in school, they put me in the office because I was the one bloody. They didn't be- they didn't know who to believe, and I sat there all day. <laughs> well, yeah, sometimes but, you gotta take a stand. Well, I mean, it, you know, protect people. Well, uh, I was thinking that today because I was walking around downtown Jackson, and there wasn't. I mean, there was nobody around, man. You know, mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, you read the papers in New York, you know, about Mississippi. And it makes you a little nervous, even though you know most people here are good people. 
Yeah. And I said, well, you know, if someone comes along, they do a Charlie on me. There's nothing I could do. But on the other hand, I, I can still run. I'm still, I'm still cool. It's all good. I mean, so I don't know. I was thinking about him this morning, but um, I, I don't know. I mean, look, you have, you have thoughts that happen that really don't, shouldn't happen. But in general, I don't really pay too much attention to most of this nonsense that's floating around. I'm trying to. I'm trying to be happy. It, it, you know, a lot of this stuff that people talk about these days. It doesn't. You have to tune it out. I don't have a TV. Oh, that that helps, helps a lot. Yeah, yeah. Dang, I wish I, I wish I could. I tried to do that. Um, I have a difficult relationship with media, television, movies. I love them, mm. uh, but but they can distract from other things I really want to do, including being out in my community. And so, yeah, it helps your peace. And you, you talk about that a lot, like self definition. Absolutely. Uh, that's something yeah. that I started really thinking about, you know, as, as I read your work is like, you know, I really just admired the, the way that you are an honest writer, try to be as much as you can. But I'm curious about that, that notion of self-definition and how you were able to come to that as a writer um, in a world that, yeah, you could be influenced to write stories for other people or about things that might sell. But yeah. How did you define yourself in this world? Well, I mean, I... Um... I I like people who are funny. If you're funny, I'm going to stick around. I'll follow you around like a puppy. I don't care what you're talking about. You know, so, you know, I have a lot of, you know, friends who, you know, politics are not the same as mine, but they're funny and I like them, you know. And so, um, it, you know, I, I, I'm not, I'm not foolish. I know that, you know, in, in, in this country, in this world, you have to watch out, you know, when you're a black fella, you better just watch yourself. But in general, um, I just have fun. I mean, I, I I just try to you know respect other people and and I respect other cultures and other people who are different than me and I have fun with them. Yeah. Like I was talking to Michael Daly the other day, yesterday, a writer who called me about my new book. And mm-hmm. Michael's seventy two now. He's an Irish cat, you know, and uh, he's one of the young. I mean, in New York used to have a bunch of really. I'm sure they do, but they, when I was young, they had incredibly gifted Irish American storytellers, many of them who became journalists and who I got to know. And Michael Daly was among them. He's one of the young ones. He's one of the last of them. And he was so funny, man. He was telling me, he said, he saw when uh, uh, when Rudy Giuliani became mayor of New York, he he was in the room with Al Sharpton and Mayor Koch, who was a, the Jewish mayor of New York. And Al Sharpton and, and Mayor Koch used to hate each other. They used to really go <laughs> <laughs> this was an Al Sharpton was you know he was he was something anyway so Giuliani walked by and Koch leaned over to Al Sharpton and said I bet you miss me now don't you <laughs> <laughs> and uh I we just cracked up I mean and Michael Dell he's a he's you know he's a good guy I told him you know in Red Hook the cops that are there I'm not an apologist for the cops, by the way, but mm-hmm. the cops in Red Hook, most of these cats are young, and they're pretty good guys, men and women. Yeah. They're pretty good guys. They look out. You know, they send the young guys to the bad neighborhoods, you know. And um, I've never had trouble with any of them. I had trouble with one, you know, this fat bum, but the rest of them are really, really cool, you know. And I told, I, I told, I told Michael, I said, you know, the only ones who really understand what's going on in Red Hook uh, are the cops who are patrolling there. And that's one of the ironies of the life we live, you know. Someone says something, you know, we always get the wrong person. You know, we we seem to live in a world where the villains get to speak and the heroes are unspoken. 
And um, so my job is to show the readers, you know, who the real heroes are. Even if we don't agree with them politically or whatever, we don't like what they say, you know, heroism is a thing. It's a funny thing, you know. Um, when, when there's a calamity, there's a hero in all of us. And when the calamities end, then the differences come out. Yeah. And um, so I, I, I don't, I think it's not, I think it's wise to just leave that other part for the other writers and the other people who want to talk about it. I think people need to hear stories that, that show our commonalities because um, Michael Daly and I are very different, you know, but we're a lot alike. We, we've worked in the same profession and, yeah. and um, you know, we understand that the truth is, the truth can be complicated, but not that complicated. No. And I think, uh, yeah, you know, stories can, can, uh, a lot of people's hearts get hardened in life. And I think good stories can, can, can make them soft again. And that, that cross-cultural difference that you talk about is very evident in, in your most recent book of how people that have different identities, but a shared experience in the same neighborhood are helping each other. And uh, I do want to talk about though, at the end of the book, the, the whole storyline with, with Dodo, right, was, um, it hit me personally in a lot of ways, you know, because I was diagnosed with Tourette syndrome when I was 10. And it's not as you know extreme as the, the circumstances in the hospital that you have in your story, but I really connected with, you know, I once saw someone accidentally, I over, I looked at over someone's shoulder and they were texting that I might bomb a plane because of my tics. <laughs> and, and that lack of humanity really hurt me as a kid. And then just seeing how you wrote about disability and, and that judgment and what's inside, right? We don't, we don't look at what's inside. And so that whole connection um, in the hospital and, and that storyline was really important. So I'm curious, though, about your, yeah, that, that storyline and how Cy, who you mentioned at the end of the book, right? It's Cy from... Right. Um, Cy friend, yeah. Yeah, the camp. How that that influenced you in that notion of inclusivity? Well, I mean, well, first of all, Cy Friend was, you know, he was Jewish. He was, the camp was a, founded by Jewish people, Jewish theater owners. And all, the whole notion of we're going to take these kids who are disabled, so-called disabled, and, and put them together regardless as to what race, religion. And, you know, no one said that. You just saw it at the camp. The kids came from all over Philly. They were all mostly working class families. Their parents were, you know, basically working class people. And um, the kids didn't really have that business of, you know, they didn't deal with race and all that stuff too much. You know, being disabled, I've said it before, in this country is like being a witness to your own lynching where everyone gets to make a speech about you but you. I mean, that's really what it is. And so these kids didn't mess around with this stupid nonsense that we that we waste time with. And they, they, they were just, I mean, they taught us. And then, you, you know, I, over the years, as I thought about trying to figure out a way to write about these children, I, I would begin to ask myself, well, what is normal? You dig? I mean, really, yeah. what is normal? I mean, they were much more normal than many of us were. Mm-hmm. And if you didn't understand that and you didn't treat them with love, you were in that size camp very long. Yeah. Um, so... Um, and if he ran that camp now, they'd put him in jail, you know, because the, the way he ran things, he would have us taking the kids on hikes and stuff. That you know, you had kids with cerebral palsy pushing around kids with, without. Le- I mean, it was just, it was just, it was, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. But, but now, you know, 
the lawyers have had their say in this country, mm-hmm. and they've had their say in the world of the disabled as well, and some of it's good and some of it's not so good. The part that is good is, you know, that people who are disabled have a little bit more, not a lot, a little bit more opportunity than they had when when I was working at the camp. The part that's bad is that, you know, I don't really know. Well, let me let me say this. I didn't realize until I worked at that camp the humanity that exists in the disabled in this country. I just didn't know. I, you know, my niece later was born and died. She was 28, you know, sort of reminded me of that. But I didn't realize that journey until I worked there. And it affected me for the rest of my life. So I, I wanted to make sure that I presented a kid, two kids in this book, who who showed us what it's like to have thousands of thoughts in your mind and heart and not be able to express them. That line hit so, so hard because, you know, they can't communicate in the way that we do. And they learn over time, even though it's hard and frustrating, how to make that connection. And it was... Um, I mean, yeah, that wrecked me, that, that relationship. It was so beautiful and powerful, and I think it teaches us a lot about, as you said, the, the humanity that we, the way that we do, we, we deal in labels a lot. Right. We deal in words. So, oh, right. um, call them a differently abled person or a special right. needs person. Most of us with disabilities don't care. <laughs> really? What you and call us, it's how that, you treat yeah, us. <laughs> they, don't use that fra- they don't use that phrase either. I mean, you learn very quickly when you're dealing with disabled people, that they deal with humanity. That's their, that's their meat and potatoes. The rest of the stuff that we, you know, with you and, I mean, when I say you and I, when I say people like myself who consider themselves normal, mm-hmm. we're dealing with cheesecake, potato chips, popcorn, soda pop, and so forth. But people who are disabled, they go straight to the money. Is there, Are there vegetables? Is there meat? Okay, time to eat. There's none of this uh-huh. other superfluous nonsense. So... They're like soldiers in the battlefield. Suddenly, you know, the guy next to you, you couldn't stand because he's from Brooklyn or he's from Moss Point, Mississippi, whatever. Well, he suddenly becomes a friend because he's firing in the same direction. So they do that all the time. They're all firing in the same direction. And so anything outside of that, they don't have time for. So you try, you know, because they're dealing with real humanity and life. So it, it, you know, monkey pants and the kid in the book is... And Dodo, the two kids, when they become friends, and also they're institutionalized, which they used to do. Yeah, the kids back in the '30s, '40s, they just put them in a, a, a you know a mental hospital, and they'd sit there for the rest of their lives. They'd be better off just killing, the, not killing them, but they'd be better off just dropping them off a cliff I mean, yeah. somewhere. Yeah, it it could not get much worse. And I think that you know there was a, a good quote in the the show River back in the day, which was about uh, someone hearing voices, which a lot of people, you know, again, write them off as crazy, put them put them in a, a prison basically. And you know, he said, it's like, we want everybody to just be able to go out and have a pint and laugh. And if, uh, if, if you're damaged or different, right, that this world's really hard to exist in. And, you know, mm. but, but there are people. And I think, um, you know, you wrote uh, the character of, it's Chona, right? Right. To be that sort of communal hub that treats everybody with humanity including Godo, and, you know, is trying to protect him from that level of uh, institutionalization that, again, might might sometimes feel worse than death. But, yeah, it's a, there's there's something to be said about we just lock them up. <laughs> well, I mean, there's a special heaven for people like, like Chona and, and, and the parents and relatives of the disabled, you know, because they know how special they are. Other people might not know. 
Um, and that part of it is important to communicate to readers because when you read in the paper or something that someone got shot over stealing a bicycle or something, you say, well, you know, the natural reaction given the way news is presented, well, you know, the kids shouldn't have been stealing the bicycle in the first place, which is true. But there's always a deeper story. And your job as a writer is to find what the deeper story is. And, you know, just because you're empathetic to a, about a person doesn't mean you're necessarily weak or you're bleeding heart liberal or any other. I mean, these words, they're just nothing but labels. Yeah, you know, empty. you call someone disabled, what does that really mean? I mean, when Joe Frazier came to the Variety Club camp, one of the kids told him, his kid with cerebral palsy, he said to him, I can kick your ass. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Just going for it. Yeah, there's a... So there you have it. I mean, uh, you know... (laughs) I mean, it has to be a kid who says something like that to Joe, because this kid was a a fan of Muhammad Ali. But the Mm -hmm. point is, you know, uh, and Joe Frazier was a great... He was a great champion. I mean, he was really a... (laughs) He was from South Carolina. He was a good person. But, you know, my point is that kids will be kids. Yeah. Um, And... uh, and if you accept the humanity of other people, it makes your life better. I, yeah, gosh, I, I can't say it better. And I, that's why I love reading your stories as I come away thinking about the ways that I can imagine the deeper story. And there, I, I, most of my life is spent on that search for just trying to understand people better and to, to build community in ways that, um, you know, I grew up in a pretty homogenous community, but, but I really found it powerful to, to go up, you know, cross those boundaries and, and build relationships in different communities. And it changed my life. And I think that, yeah, that your stories bring that out in people. And, you know, the one thing that I always love that you talk about is that the magic of fiction, because a lot of times, you know, when you're just living reality, you can't have that imagination and the story being able to make people's dreams come true, um, is, is just, you know, I love that. And I think it's it, it resonates. And I'm curious about, I know with your grandmother, that was that was prevalent in this most recent book. Well, yeah. Well, my grandmother, she had a very di- difficult life. You know, she was married to a, a rabbi, a so-called rabbi. And, you know, she um, didn't, uh, you know, she spoke Yiddish. She was, you know, ran a grocery store in the black section of town. She didn't have many friends. There weren't many Jews in the town. This is in the South in the 20s and 30s. And uh, you can imagine what it was like. It was not easy. So, you know, I wanted to have a, her to have a better life. And, you know, she didn't. You know, her son, my uncle, ran away from home, was killed in World War II, and then my mother ran away from home and never came back. Um, and she died shortly after that. So I wanted her to have a better life. So I put her on the page and, and gave her the love she never had in her life. But, um, you know, once Chona, the character, became real on the page, I didn't have to worry about, uh, my grandmother anymore. I just had to follow Chona around. And uh, and then the story really f- folded out. What happens is when you put characters on the page and they're good people, you don't have to make choices for them. They make the choices. And then you just are smart enough to stop editorializing and just follow them around. Don't try to put your opinion in there because your opinion don't count. I mean, even with Doc Roberts, who's a you know so-called bad guy. Yeah. You know, he's a member of the Klan and all that. I mean, just because he's in the Klan doesn't mean he's a... Look, you know, he probably he should, you know, he should have just joined the Bridge Club. But it doesn't mean that he's like a bad person. It means that he has made some choices that he probably shouldn't have made. But, yeah. but you see the reasoning behind it when you meet him. 
and um, and you see the cost that that it has exacted on him. Similarly, you know, people who are good in the book, including Moshe and Chona and Nate and Addie and Fatty, they make choices too that aren't necessarily the right ones. But the difference is that they're trying to come out on the right side of it without taking the shortcut. The shortcut, you know, the shortcut is it's somebody else's fault. This land was great until we came. You know, that that mentality, will it'll just betray your heart every time. You know, the land don't belong to nobody. You know, I mean, you have a deed that says this land is mine. Mm -hmm. This land is your land. This land is mine. I'm from California to, you know, okay, the song is beautiful and all, but the truth is the land doesn't belong to anybody. Yeah. And uh, and then you get into, well, if it doesn't belong to anybody, it's it's God's land. Well, who's God? In my opinion, you know, my God is works for me, but he might not work for you. So mm. is my God better than yours? I mean, I don't think so. So you get into that. And, and what really what really screws people up is this whole business of, you know, the older I get, the more I realize that, you know, religion, when it's used like a baseball bat, is just so destructive. And, uh, and I don't, you know, I don't want to hear about it too much. Even though I'm a Christian, I grew up in the church and uh, I don't want to hear about it too much. When you still go to the church, your parents yeah, yeah. found it, right? Yeah, yeah. 1954. I'm the, man, I'm the chief caretaker, man. What are you talking about? I'm the sexton. I'm the sexy sexton. <laughs> I love that. But yeah, religion, it, I mean, and you, you play on this lot in the good Lord bird with uh, which side God is on in war, right? It's yeah, always, yeah, sure, yeah. it's always on, God's always on your side if you want yeah, it to be. Yeah, I mean, all you have to do is say it, you know, but yeah. saying it and living it are two different things. I mean, John Brown was a Calvinist. You know, Calvinists felt like, you know, everything was already prophesied. It was going to, ha- you know, it was it was all meant to be. Yeah. Um, I, and, you know, he was crazy and he was wrong in a lot of ways. Um, but, um, you know, he had to live with his choices, too. Yeah. And, and a lot of the choices he made were choices he was trapped into because it was a part of him that was very pure. Mm-hmm. Now, who set that trap? Our, we did. Our society did. Boxed him in, you know. He refused to accept the whole business of, you know, blacks not being equal. And, and uh, it cost him. It cost him his two sons. It cost him two of his sons, his family, you know. And, um, and the, you know, the good news is that John Brown's relatives are still walking around in this land somewhere. And I, I met one of his great, great, great nephews or something. Wow. You know, he was out there in the, mid, in the far west, like in the Seattle area, still stirring up trouble. <laughs> um, but I guess my point is that you know, religion can be very dangerous. And, yeah. Uh, and the, the older I get, the more I realize how dangerous it is and, and why religion should be separated from politics. I mean, I don't want to get into that, but yeah, it's just, you know, it can be, it, it can, it, it's not good. When the characters you write often are, are representations of that difference between talk, empty rhetoric, and action. And you tend to, to write um, powerfully about you you side with the action, right? You well, don't have yeah, time because, for the funny yeah, business. The speechifying parlor man. Well, I <laughs> go I to a church where people, you know, two out of ten people do everything. You know, the other eight people got the pretty hats on and they're singing. The, you, know, you know, and then uh, as soon as church is over, you don't see them again until the next Sunday. Mm. Well, you know, I'm more interested in what the two people who do everything do. Because that's how it really works. Yeah. You know, so. And that's the people you, know, you can be a model for. 
Well, I mean, I, I, I'm smart enough to know that the, the old women in my church are smarter than me. So yeah, I don't, I don't tell them. I just say, what do you, what do you need me to do next? I never, I never say, you know, even if their opinions don't, don't match up with mine, I never say, you know, um, let's do this. I, I'm not that smart. Mm. I mean, they don't have a lot of formal education, but that doesn't mean nothing. You, you had an interesting conversation recently where you. And, and, you know, I'm not trying to, to get in the conflict that happened, but about women and power in the community, right? Well, and, yeah, and- I mean, I was talking to somebody on the radio. You know, she hadn't read the book, and I was saying that women have a lot of power, and she got into this whole intellectual, millennial-type jive. Man, I don't have time for that. You know, yeah. women do have a lot of power. They don't have enough. But um, in my church, they certainly have a lot of power because they're doing all the lifting. You know, the men, the few men are doing all the yakking, and then they go home and watch the baseball game. I ain't interested in what the New York Mets do. Yeah. I mean, I know all about the Mets. Great. You know, they win, lose, doesn't matter. The next day, the water ain't working in the basement. Somebody got to fix it. Yeah. And it's the women who do it. So in that regard, they have a lot of power. Now, you talk societally, societally well. I mean, I don't know. I mean, you look, you know, I, I just don't have time for a lot of puff and smoke in my life. I mean, I... You know, when she started saying, you know, well, women do don't have power, but it's true they don't have power. But in it my world, you're looking at power, you know, but in a community, when people are doing the work daily that isn't seen, right? It seems that. Well, uh, well, look how this spills out into politics and 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 these these little intellectual puff, you know, university type talks is out my game. That's not yeah. my, you know, I'm not yeah. interested in that. I, I'm a practical man. You know, I, I get on the F train like everybody else and I ride it to Manhattan. I don't want to hear none of that smoke. Are you interested in showing how women don't have power and they need more power? Show up at my church on a Saturday. I could use a hand. Mm. Otherwise, I ain't interested. It's just, I'm, you know, there's too much talk and not enough walk. So I, I don't really have those kinds of conversations because they yeah. don't help me. They just, you know, these I used to have these conversations in college when it was 2 o'clock in the morning I was hoping to get laid. That's it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Yeah, really. The, I mean, yeah, I shouldn't say that, stuff. but I mean, that's really that's pretty. That's I pretty, appreciate that. Well, it's pretty it, crass. I shouldn't say. I'm an old man. I shouldn't say that, but that's my my point true. is that <laughs> you know, let's do the walking and let's stop the talking. I yeah, I mean, it's it's the one thing that's going to help us is if more people walk and and don't just talk about it. And I am curious though, going back to Oberlin because you mentioned college. Oberlin was historically a pretty radical place. In terms of the abolition yeah, movement. movement, sure. I'm curious how much of that ignited um, what you eventually wrote in the Good Lord Bird, and, and some of that. Well, I mean, I, I, you know, one of John, I think John Brown's father was one of the original trustees of Oberlin. I didn't know that when I wrote the book. What Oberlin gave me was the idea that if you're really smart, there's always going to be somebody around that you can find to talk to. I never met so many smart kids in one place until I got to Oberlin. I yeah. mean, everybody was smart. And even later in life, when you meet people all over the place who went to Oberlin. You say, man, yeah, I can see why you went there because you're really smart. Um, it was the first school to admit blacks and women. Um, Sonny Rollins, the great jazz saxophonist, has his, gave his horn to the school and uh, you know, because he's a person who really understands history. I think Oberlin has, you know, suffered in these recent times because it's a bastion of so-called liberal thinking in a very conservative county in Ohio. Yeah, yeah. With the, the school has gone through a lot. Um, and the school is certainly not perfect. 
but I'm very grateful I went there. Um, I'm very grateful that they educated me and, and both my sons. I have a son who's there now and another one. Wow, yeah, that's went. right. So I, I think it's a great school. Now, it's definitely imperfect. Mm-hmm. It's not It's not perfect and it's too expensive and, you know, all of those things. But it's this place that prides itself on trying to listen to other people. And I think that's what makes it special. I mean, Harvard, you know, you go to Harvard, okay, big deal. I mean, who cares? Okay, if you went to Harvard, what does that make you better? You, know, you still got to brush your teeth in the morning. What difference is, you know, Harvard is like Harvard. You know, I went to Columbia afterwards. Yeah, yeah. For my master's degree. But I feel I have no great affiliation or great love of Columbia. I mean, it's a good school, but I don't feel any connection to it. It's really how I felt about Michigan and Vanderbilt. It's like I, there were great moments there. It was good people in the community, but it was a lot of uh, posturing intellectually and, you know, how you look in the world, your, your status symbols. And that really, it made me um, feel like I was on the outside a lot in, in classrooms where I wasn't about that. I was like, I'm just trying to learn. You know, it's not about how, how smart we are. None of us are smart. We're 18, 19. We're, we're here to learn. And um, anything you could do to look good was kind of the deal. And um, I know you, you said you, there was a, one writing class that you took that you had to, oh, yeah, yeah, to do a remedial class that you actually said... That professor was the one who helped you realize you could become oh, a writer, yeah. that you had a gift for it. Yeah, his name was Tom Taylor. Yeah, he was a good guy. I still remember his name. I don't think he was a full-time teacher. I think he was like an adjunct to somebody that came as a sub or something. Yeah. Yeah, I had to take some kind of remedial writing class or English class. and um, I wrote an essay, uh, I wrote a writing assignment about a guy who goes into the bathroom, sits on the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> and then he uh, has a heart attack because he remembers all the bad things he did. And, and I, I, when I handed in, I, you know, I figured this guy's going to think I'm crazy. And afterwards, he said to me, I, "I think you have a touch for this writing. I think you should consider it." At the time, I didn't, you know, I, I heard what he said, but I said, "Well, yeah," but you know, I was into music, so yeah. I didn't uh, really pay that much attention to it. But later on, when I was a, became a writer at the Washington Post, I called him and, and I thanked him for, um, I thanked him for. For telling me that and for showing, you know, seeing things in myself that I couldn't see, which is what good teachers do. Absolutely. And that school had and still has, you know, great teachers. I mean, teachers are the real heroes in, in our society, I think. They really are the ones. And you you stump for public education a lot. I mean, you... Absolutely. And yeah. the arts. And, and what we're doing with cutting a lot of these programs is... I is mean, uh, might, we'd be better off cutting off an arm and just leaving it there and giving people back music you know, liberal art language, you know, here West Virginia now cut all of its language studies. I mean, how do you expect Americans to be creative if they don't know the difference between Spanish, French, and a pair of pliers? Really, it's just, you know, you're not, you can't train people to be technical. What college does is it teaches you how to think. Now, if you want to learn how to fix a car and there's a mechanic in your neighborhood and he knows about cars and you can apprenticeship with that guy, yeah. you'll be just as good as someone who goes to car mechanic school. But if you can't go, to, you know, you have to go to school for a lot. of You have to go to school to learn to be creative. Creativity comes from studying the arts, music, sociology, anthropology, history, especially history. And we've devalued it. You know, I was a history major. I dropped a biology class, walked into a 20th century American wars and social memory class, and I had no idea that was going to change my life. And then... That's when I became into the liberal arts because I thought college was, oh, it's going to make me a lot of money. And I, I went the opposite way. But there, the quote that from, from uh, the Heaven and Earth grocery store that really stuck with me, even though it's not in the context necessarily of history, but this philosophy of uh, eggs got everything to do with tunnels. 
everything got everything to do with everything. <laughs> and, yeah. and to me, though, like the connections that you can draw from that liberal arts education and start to understand, like that's kind of how it is to me. And I know you've talked about that before, just how much unanticipated connections you've made because of that that line of thinking and sure it helps you write the books (laughs) well you know and books characters have to be connected you know um and so uh and in order for characters to be connected they have to have some sort of historical tie to lots of other different things and so um and when people who aren't educated talk about connecting things, they they say what that character Miggy said: everything is connected to you know everything is. I forgot what what the line is, but my point is that they <laughs> yeah. understand the connective elements that make matters go because there's no intellectual fluff and puff between it to drive home their little to wedge in their little point. And that's the problem with these intellectual conversations is that, mm-hmm. you know, really beneath it all, somebody's got a point to make and it's like, it might be like a tiny little point, but they got a whole way of fluffing and puffing yeah. to make this thing go. And who got time for that? You know, just tell me a dirty joke or something. I, I really can't, you know, I, I just ain't for it. I, I'm, I yeah. just, it's a waste of time, you know, and we don't have a lot of that in this world. That's a good point. It's like time is of the essence. So if we're beating around the point. No, you can't do it. You just then we're not going to get anywhere. And if we have all these problems, then we sure enough shouldn't just spend all, all the time talking about it. Well, you know, I'm, I'm glad they're having this festival so all these other writers can get their point across. And, you know, Mississippi and wow, you know, I mean, the way people talk down here, I man, it's a whole world down here, man. I mean, yeah, you know blues and all i mean it's it's quite something man (laughs) yeah one of the things i love about mississippi and i'm not from here i don't live here i just became fascinated with how important it is and how many people here don't get their just due in stories and the stereotypes and i said you know what i want to go see for myself and uh it's been an enlightening few years of spending time here well i mean this this place is like most places is full of good people you know who've been kicked around um and you know uh, i mean of course, if you come from New York, you're a little nervous about coming to the South. Although the truth is, you know, why would you be nervous? I mean, our mayor was Giuliani, you know. And you talk about developers, our main developer was president of the country. So, you know, we know a little bit, a bit about hardship and and uh, what it's like to be when people who are slick run things. Yeah. And they all of them ain't white neither. So um, I think it's a beautiful state. I mean, you know, if I was a young man and you know, fell in love with somebody from Mississippi. I suppose I'd come here, get me a big farm, man, play the blues the rest of my life. You wouldn't see me no more. <laughs> but, you know, life went in a different direction. Yeah, there are definitely a lot of people around here with music you connect with. Oh, man, they got some. And I, I, I work with a guitarist from Mississippi, from Moss Point, Mississippi, for many years. His name is Keith Robinson. He lives in New York. He's just, look, all these guys that come from down south, they can play. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, I mean, don't. You better not pull your horn out around them unless you got something to say. These cats can go. You know? It helps you level up, huh? Well, I mean, um, I'm not really a blues player. I play with, I played the blues for years, you know. Um, but it's sort of like, it's sort of like I played with a band that played Jamaican music, and Jamaicans would just mm. crack up when they heard us play. I mean, it sounded like you know, if you didn't know. Uh, you know uh, Bob Marley's music you know if you didn't know it you'd say oh they sound pretty good but if you from Jamaica and you hear it you say man this guy and same thing with uh, you know the guys from the south who play the blues you know Um, 
if they can play, I mean, I I played one time with Stevie Ray Vaughan mm. in Austin, Texas, and uh, man, I shouldn't even. I mean, he was just he was so bad, man. He was just he was just a killer, man. He was one of those guys who just lightning bolt struck him. Yeah, and he was with friends with Hubie Sumlin, who was a guitar player. He used to play with Howlin' Wolf, and he he took took uh, he looked after Hubie Sumlin, at least when I was there. You know, like looked after him in a real real way. But you can't get on the stage with you know Stevie Ray Vaughan, pull your horn out, and think you're going to be saying. You know what I mean, I wasn't saying nothing. I know who you are. You know, that's well, I mean, I, I just bottom line, I wasn't saying nothing. Yeah, you yeah. Know, you know, when he got finished playing the guitar, it wasn't nothing on the saxophone that needed to be said that I could deliver. That it's you know, plus he played really loud. Yeah, you know, I mean, he could crank himself up, but he should have cranked himself up. Yeah, you know, but I, you know, look, you, you know, I was just there to express, and uh, I expressed, and it was good. It was all good. It's a shame he passed away. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's important to document, um, keep those stories alive of musicians that are passing. Um, there's a whole generation. I know there was a project a friend of mine did in Mississippi that did just that. Eighty, eighty blues musicians. You know, trying to make sure that we remember the impact yeah, that music yeah, has I had. Mean, <clears throat> um, there's a lot of history that down here that you know that that goes away that people don't really you know pay too much attention to. Uh, a lot of folk folk music and a lot of that stuff was really some of the best part of American life that yeah. people never really um, paid too much attention to. Um, you know, you had to get it up to New York or something before anybody paid attention. I mean, that's kind of the, one of the ironies. It, a lot of soul is really down here, but, you know, Detroit is considered the capital of soul music, you know. Um, well, you could argue that Philadelphia really had as much soul music as Motown, but you know nobody knew about it. Yeah, and Mississippi, and everybody there came from Mississippi, South Carolina, North Carolina, and so forth, Tennessee, and all. You know, so um, it's nice to see, you know, this book festival, see these people being rediscovered, and the young writers here. I mean that that helps a little bit. You know, every little bit helps. Yeah. Well, I'm curious. Speaking of young writers, you know, I've I've read a bunch of debut novels and in, in preparation for this book festival are there any writers that you'd say hey you should check out this this young writer they're well, going to be you know that's the problem because i'm not good with names i mean they handed out they had a handout here that young writer she had an italian name or something I, I, i'm not really good with young see first of all i don't read novels myself <laughs> I, I i just read history books and and like instruction books whatever but um I mean, there are a lot of good writers, and I'm sure they come from the South. Um, John Grisham uh, has this thing he does in Oxford, Mississippi, where he he has a cottage for young writers. He's really good that way. And he mentioned a couple of really good Southern writers, young writers to me, but I, I can't remember their name. I know one good Southern writer who's not young that people don't know really a lot about is a guy named Mark Richard. Mm. It's spelled Richard, but, you know, he's from New Orleans, so it's Richard. But yeah. he's a great writer, man. Um, he's. I mean, there's so many good writers. I mean, Rachel Kushner, you know, Edwige Dandekot, and they're not young, but they're great. But th- one of the things that this festival tries to do, which is important, is give these young writers a shot. Um, you know, to get where I am, because you know, bookstores, 
you know, the big bookstores, they don't really, it's the independents, like the independent bookstore that's sponsoring this festival. Mm-hmm. These are the ones who hand sell these books. That's how my, that's how I got here because somebody in an independent bookstore said, this is a book worth reading. So these young writers really need the support of, of readers and people who are listening to this podcast. And so if you have a few extra dollars, you know, and give the writer a chance. Sometimes the first book ain't the one. Sometimes the third or fourth book. So you got to buy the first book so the, 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 the publisher will give the writer a shot at the second or third book. I think that's the lesson. Support writers, support independent bookstores. Lemuria, I'm wearing the T-shirt for him. I yeah. mean, one of the best bookstores in the country. Make, you know, Ellen Daniels and the BookFest crew. I mean, what they do to make this happen and give people a voice and build a community is amazing. And um, I'm just going to wrap up with this. It's just, James, you've, you've changed my life. <laughs> this was one of the best things I've ever been able to do. And um, I'll, I'll never be able to thank you enough for, for your stories and, and being able to connect with you this way. So I really appreciate you joining. Wow. Another happy customer. Well, yeah. thank you very much. <laughs> it's nice of you to say that. I appreciate it. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, thanks Enjoy so the much. rest of the book festival. All right. Thanks. All right. <laughs> Bright on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival the South's Literary Lawn Party.